My name is Mackenzie Bean. I'm a managing editor with Becker's Hospital Review. So excited to be here today to be your moderator for today's session on social determinants of health. Today, I am joined by four amazing panelists to discuss their current efforts to improve patient outcomes and community health, big ideas for the future, and more. We'll also save the last few minutes for any questions you all might have for our panelists. To get started, I'd love to turn the floor over to each of our panelists to introduce themselves and share a little bit more about their organizations. Jatin, would you like to start? Sure. So my name is Jatin Dave. I work for the state of Massachusetts as the chief medical officer for our state Medicaid program called MassHealth. Kevin? Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Kevin Green. I am the VP of Community Health Centers with Ashner Health. Ashner has approximately 40 hospitals in the Gulf South area. Um, let's see, 34,000 employees, roughly 4,500 physicians, partnerships, et cetera. And we've just begun some really interesting work around healthy state initiatives, transitioning Louisiana from far too many years at 50th uh, up to 40th by 2030. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Alyssa or Lisa Charbonneau. I'm the chief medical officer for Encompass Health. And we are in the post-acute space, so we have uh, 147 freestanding inpatient rehabilitation hospitals and uh, home health and hospice agency as well. That's about to spin off, but we have about 40,000 employees, and uh, we have hospitals in about 40 states and two in Puerto Rico. So very spread out and happy to be here today to talk about some of our initiatives. Hi, my name is Amalia Stanton. I am the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for Memorial Hermann Health System. Uh, our territory is the greater Houston area. We have um, about 270 care delivery sites, about 115 years old. We do about 3,600 lifelight missions a year, um, and we have one of the busiest trauma centers in the United States, if not the busiest. And um, 29,000 employees and about 1.9 million patient encounters uh, annually. And about um, 25,000 births a year. Wonderful, well, we are so excited to have you all here today. I thought we could start off talking about what's working well right now when it comes to social determinants of health. Kevin, let's start with you and then I'd invite our fellow panelists to respond. What tools or capabilities are really proving the most crucial right now when it comes to improving outcomes and the health of a community? Okay, so, so much of the work we're doing in Louisiana, I'll be specific to the work in Louisiana, has been uh, very recent as far as a, from a health system perspective. I mean, th there are organizations that have been there 30 years plus that have done some amazing work, but as a health system, we've just begun this journey, right? And I think one of the most important tools, which is not necessarily a tool, but it's a relationship that must be formed with those you intend to care for, is that you have to build trust with them. You have to create a trusting relationship, one in which there's transparency, one in, one in which there's acknowledgement of the fact that there has been or has, have, has not been these resources available to those patients for quite a, quite a while, and we've had the resources to, uh, that we could have offered potentially, right? Uh, we have to collaborate with partnerships, so acknowledging those that are there, and then beyond that, we have to create access because we can be trusting, we can have partnerships, but if we're not actually bringing tools that change clinical outcomes, then this is for nothing. Now, specifically ask, answering the question, mm -hmm. I think that we're, today we're using digital medicine, we're using telemedicine, we're using traditional ways in uh, practice management, and 
I was in a discussion earlier this morning as to the importance of digital medicine when it comes to this patient population, because I think it's a bit different than our other patients, in that if I present a tool to you that allows you to have remote diagnostics or allows you to, in essence, remain at work when you are barely making a living wage and then not have to trade off health, health outcomes for the ability to pay your rent or health outcomes for the ability to purchase healthy foods, then that is substantially important and significant in your life. So the tools I, I believe that are most impactful within community health are the tools that we've always had. We just have to learn to implement them differently in a way that matters most to our patients. So I'll just add to that. I, I think that uh, one of the issues that we see with our patients is uh, usually patients come to rehab have had some catastrophic injury or illness. That's the reason that they're in rehab. And so they're at a very vulnerable place uh, from the get-go, from admission. And what we're doing is uh, leveraging our EHR, which we have a, a standard Cerner platform throughout all of our hospitals, um, to identify patients who are going to be at higher risk of readmission after discharge from the rehab hospital, and then intervening before we discharge them from rehab to make sure that we're identifying those issues, some of which Kevin mentioned, like making sure that they have transportation to their follow-up appointments, that they have access to their medications, they can afford their medications, their medications are on formulary, um, you know, and then also since many of our patients that come through rehab will uh, have a disability that may be new for them, we want to make sure that they have the community resources that they need uh, to support them as uh, disabled um, members of their community going forward. So we're empowering our case managers and our other clinicians to really uh, talk to patients and their families about these issues that they will encounter after discharge so that hopefully we can uh, keep them home safely after discharge and they don't wind up back in the emergency room or back in the acute care hospital for something that was potentially preventable. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, similar to Kevin, we share a lot of commonality in that we have very diverse communities. For Houston, um, which is a minority-majority city, I think it's really important to be able to communicate in a way that makes sense and is appropriate um, because there's a lot of barriers that exist. And so in order to really address the health determinants, you've got to really understand what those barriers are. And at the end of the day, communication is, is core. But I, d I also think there's just not one answer. There's not one way to do this. It's going to depend on the individual, the t um, the the group that the audience um, that we're speaking with for us we've at, at memorial herman we've really um been at this for a long time and we've been working and trying and trying to really um figure out a way to find a solution that's more long term and so we we call things band-aids which are the immediate needs and then we really have taken a step back from that and said we've got to have um, a two-pronged approach one is to actually deal with people today their food issues, their you know food insecurity, their um, lack of access to medical care, uh, et cetera. And then we've got to actually be thinking about a sustained change. And so that's really made us have to take a step back and look at things a little bit less traditionally than a hospital system would look at. So if we know that education is linked to health, which we do, um, then we've got to get to the education side of things. And so we're placing um, clinics in some of our lower socioeconomic zip codes to ensure that there are clinics in the, in the elementary schools 
so that we can allow these children a chance to um, address their medical issues. And, and what that does is twofold. First, the parents of these individuals are also in a situation where they can't take off from work and they can't provide what they would like to provide, and that's even if they could get access to what they needed. The other part of it is an understanding that a child who is depressed and or mentally ill or um, has anxiety, acne, dental issues, whatever it might be, um, it's a hindrance to their success. And so when you have lack of success at the elementary school level, it just continues build, building foundationally, which ends up causing um, less economic success for the city and for those individuals. And there's a direct link, and we found that. We have 16% um, of uh, children who have no insurance in, in Houston. That's a lot of children. In fact, we have a huge undocumented population. And so access is, is everything. And you cannot, and I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent here, but you cannot expect these individuals without the right transportation to be able to get to you. So providing access where it's convenient for them becomes pivotal to really being able to, to move the needle. But like I said, that educational um, effort is really a long-term play. The today part is getting the care they need now. State policy standpoint, I think we focus on kind of two main buckets of activities, which is not literally the tools or capabilities. The first thing is to how do we encourage the screening through trusted partners, as Kevin mentioned, uh, which are probably community health workers and, and community health workers like, uh, like staff, wrapping around the primary care and clinician model. So how do you incentivize those payment models, which is typically done through our accountable care organizations? So that's number one. And then obviously once they screen, if they're done positive or if there are gaps, then referring those patients and making sure we incentivize for closing the loop is the first bucket. The second bucket is directly funding the social services, high priority social services, housing, nutrition, and so on, through our flexible services model uh, is the second way of doing it. So those are not really tools or capabilities, but those are our financing mechanism in a nutshell uh, uh, to, the to the best I can mind. Thanks. Yes, please. I just want to make a point. Uh, I mean, there are lots of organizations that are doing great work, right? There's incremental increases, incremental uh, improvements that are happening. There are health systems that are focused. I mean, your work in Massachusetts is just, you know, phenomenal things that can happen with the resources available. But in, in Louisiana, specifically our state, that we are not winning this at all. Like we're doing, historically, we're not doing a good job. And we have not done well. Our quality outcomes are poor. Our access, sure, mental health, we're we got around 26, 26 in the nation as far as number of mental health providers. Yet I promise you, at just about every corner you go to within the inner city or in certain you know, more densely populated areas, you'll see that we do not have enough. Or if we do have enough, then it's not being implemented in the way that it needs to be. And I think that this is a reflection point, not just an inflection point, but we have to be honest with ourselves as to whether or not the efforts we've done historically are enough, or are we being strategic and intentional in the efforts we're doing now, or are we being reactionary to the last two years of what we've experienced? And we have to be honest with that question as we consider how we move forward. Otherwise, we will only have Band-Aids, and we won't make those strategic uh, changes that will have generational impacts. I have to agree with Kevin. I think that one of the things that we've been able to very clearly understand is that you have to have the partnerships period, um, and that means the hospitals have to work together, the insurance, um, the, all the third parties, faith-based organizations, et cetera. There is no way to win this doing it by yourself. And the other issue is I think you've got to get very strategic 
just like you would in any other effort and be very focused. Boiling the ocean isn't gonna get you there either. You've got to get really thoughtful about what your pillars are, if it's access, if it's food insecurity, if it's going to be about housing, is it going to be about transportation? For Memorial Hermann, we really took a step back and said, we've got to get better about being efficient and we are not going to win alone and we're gonna to have to find partners and non-traditional partners. And you're not gonna be able to make relationships and have trust overnight. You're gonna to have to put that investment in over time because that's the way you're gonna actually be able to get to the point where you have a relationship with a patient and that patient trusts you enough that you have longevity and you get through the chronic illnesses and all of these other things that continue to hamper. So for us, we picked four simple pillars and we're getting at it and we're just gonna keep going. But I will tell you, we decided that we were gonna take nine, 10 um, parks in inner city areas that um, were, had violence, um, were not really usable, and we decided to partner with uh, other hospitals as well as the city, and we put money, um, and it's probably costing a million dollars a park um, to fix them, and the idea being that if you don't even have a safe place to even try to do exercise, to even be able to go, how could you possibly, I mean, there's some foundational things that are just um, hindrances, and so I think those relationships and partnerships are everything. So let's stick on that partnership piece. What would you say are some of the qualities of an effective relationship or partnership between healthcare providers, payers, social organizations, et cetera? What's needed to really make those partnerships thrive? Jatin, let's start with you on this one. So I think uh, humility, as we were talking with each other, I learned a lot from Kevin even, even the first five minutes of, of listening to him because he's walking the walk versus, you know, I have limited insight into what, what can be really achieved. So I think humility is really, really critical and genuinely listening to each other without, without having judgment and your preconceived biases. I know it's, I'm kind of embarking on this a little bit more than I should, but that's a critical point. Second point is accountability at the same time. We cannot keep on just talking about, you know, nice pillars and nice slides and nice stuff. We've got to say, how many people are, really, are you really helping? Show me some real data. And this is, by the way, it's politically incorrect thing to do, but I think we must do that, is what exactly are you achieving every single year? Not what you're spending, not what you're, what you're proposing on a beautiful slides, but how many people did genuinely really helped in a, in a concrete way? And that's what I learned from you, by the way, Kevin. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, what I would add to that is, um, so I, I grew up in New Orleans, and I'm from the Lower Ninth Ward, New Orleans. Many, I think, have heard of it from Katrina, et cetera but it's an impoverished area, underserved area in New Orleans. And um, there is a perception that, and now I'm not just speaking from my personal experience. We've had many discussions within the community and those that live in these neighborhoods today as well as you know, those that are a bit older. But there's a general perception that there's a significant disparity and inequality and that there's no true will to bridge that gap. And so I think one of the, the key components to building a successful partnership is to assume goodwill, which was what a mentor taught me very early on when I began this work. He said, Kevin, you can be an advocate, but be careful not to become an activist. There are those, there is a history here, but there's also a very potentially positive future. And if you bring the past in many ways, in too many ways, into the present, it's very difficult to build a prosperous partnership. So you have to assume goodwill. But I also think that dignity and respect are incredibly important. And dignity and respect not only with patients, but also with other organizations. Oshner is a six, seven billion dollar organization. We're partnering with organizations that 
potentially won't have the door open next year if they don't receive some philanthropic funding. Yet, they've been doing the work. They understand the patients. They understand what's necessary. They have received that message from the patients, and they have been caring for them. And they absolutely deserve our respect in many ways. Um, so I think that those are incredibly important, that everyone comes to the table on equal footing so that we can solve solutions, give solutions for the problems in front of us. Yeah, um, that really resonates with, with me as well. So in our organization, which again, it's, you know, we have hospitals spread out all over the country, I think the culture really has to come from the top down. So um, you have to have investment from your um, C-suite and that trickles down into uh, the different areas, the different hospitals, the different departments. And our culture is what we call it a CPR culture, comfort, professionalism, and respect. And that involves, uh, especially in rehab, where we're really focused on working with patients and the families to achieve very specific goals. So patients are with us for about two weeks. Maybe they've had a stroke or a spinal cord injury or, or something else. We have to work with the patients and their families to understand their goals. And in order to do that, they have to, be on, they have to trust you, be honest with you. Uh, we have to be able to, uh, to collaborate um, with the patient and their family on what specifically they want to achieve during that two-week period. And in order to do that, you have to be able to meet them where they're at. So if you know, they speak a different language, they have a different culture, we need to make sure that all of our clinicians and non-clinicians who are working in the hospital understand that CPR culture and treat everyone with the same um, amount of professionalism and respect that, that we expect from our employees. And then, and then that will gradually over time, I think, engender more trust uh, between the patients, um, many of whom maybe have not up until this point uh, been trustful of the medical establishment and maybe have not had good preventive care and that's why they're in the situation that they're in that's why they've had a stroke and so uh, doing a lot of education um, for patients may and making sure that they understand their medications we consider health literacy we do an assessment of health literacy while patients are with us so that uh, we can do the best that we can to help them achieve those goals and then our, our, you know, our kind of data point of how, how do we know we're being successful over time is looking to see, are we keeping our patients out of the hospital? Are they getting back into the community successfully and staying healthy? And that obviously is, is a, a, a very interdisciplinary um, ask. So having that communication uh, between, you know, providers in rehab and the community providers, the primary care physicians, um, the community resources that that specific patient and family are going to need in order to be successful back in the community. That, that's really our goal. Mia, yeah, I, I think everything they've said is absolutely true. At, at the end of the day, I don't think this is any different than, and I'm obviously a marketing person, but this is about really understanding your audience, and this is about having those individuals present when you're creating programs so that from the very beginning they're made correctly. I cannot tell you the amount of times brilliant minds have sat in a room to create some great breakthrough program and don't understand one iota of what's actually going to work because they've never walked the walk and seen the realities. And I think starting differently and really being thoughtful about who the right partners are at the table is going to set you off on the right way. The other part is respect can be shown in a lot of ways. 
Um, I think accountability and seeing something through is part of delivering on your promise. For us, it's easy, right? My, for Memorial Hermann, our vision is, is to create healthier communities. Our job is to do that. That is what our, um, our sole purpose is um, for what we're trying to achieve. And you can be as successful you, as you want in market share and profitability and revenue, um, but if you haven't done what your vision is and what you're set to do as a mission, then you've failed. Um, so I think as a system, we've really decided to, to really dig deep and to really understand that. And, you know, this past year, um, we joined uh, others as becoming an anchor institution. And, and what that really means is understanding that we have 29,000 employees and um, a, lot, a lot of economic um, power. And so what we need to do is, is really truly harness that and have that locally spent. And we're taking a look at everything. We are looking at our jobs and we are redefining our jobs. Do you need a college degree? Does it make sense? Are we able to employ locally if we would just be more thoughtful about these positions so that we can change the trajectory of lives long term? When we think about our suppliers, we're changing to, my, um, to, to make a concerted effort to have more minority um, and local suppliers so that we can really support and reflect both with our buying power who we are and who we want to be, and also make an economic impact in you know, our footprint. We're taking a look at food pantries. Um, we are taking a look at affordable housing, and we're making a huge investment in affordable housing. Um, we have all kinds of concerns. You know, We look at um, our female African-American mortality rates, and, and they're just awful. So um, when it comes to... Um, maternity. Lots of, of individuals have insurance and then it stops after two months, but yet our mortality um, is completely defined over the whole year. And so we need to make policy changes that are thoughtful about um, what's actually happening. Happening. So that's the long way of saying that I think that authenticity and accountability is seen and understood. And I think partnership and trust is grown over time. Um, and it's not done necessarily easily. I also think that um, for individuals who are impacted by all of these issues, bringing them to the forefront and having them at the table, either because they're represented in your programming or they're represented in your um, employee base, actually starts to shift the dynamic and make you smarter. We, we, we have an, an area in Houston that's very um, Asian Pacific and we found that we had a lot of um, individuals and their family members were bringing food. They were bringing food because they didn't like the hospital food. Well, nobody likes hospital food, but this was particularly distasteful for, for, for many of them because they just didn't, they didn't eat it. So unfortunately, if you had just had a heart attack, what we didn't want was the wrong kind of foods coming in and yet we couldn't stop these like bags of food that were being brought in. And when we realized we needed to change, if 80% of that hospital is Asian, why are we feeding them Western food? Right? So let's find a way to make it healthy. We probably ruined it, but at the end of the day, we were being more thoughtful. Well, you know what? They feel more comfortable. They're able to heal faster. These are the kind of things that may not be easy because change isn't easy, but it's necessary. Yeah, I think that thoughtful piece is so big. Kevin, is there something you wanted to add? I do, but it's not actually on this subject. I just want to be sure I said it. <laughs> um, Go for it. <laughs> I'll loop it in, though. I'll loop it in. When, when it comes to partnerships payers, I want to discuss the fact that we have to, when we do this work, we have to be willing to and understand that you're not doing it for the money, right? Our strategy at Austin Health 
If you look at our pro forma, which, would, which encompasses 15 uh, health centers over the next two to three years going forward, we started this about a year and a half ago. Uh, multidisciplinary primary care, peds, behavioral health specialists, women's services, cardiology, community health workers, behavior, you know, all, all sorts of services. But in the end, we're expected to lose about 13 million annually. So you have to be willing to put the money in because today it may or may not be there. Now the reality of it is, and this is why I said you have to be willing to, but it may or may not be there. Uh, underserved populations does not necessarily equate to lack of money or lack of jobs. There are other reasons for, that they're underserved, right? Our New Orleans East Clinic, we uh, expected to have about 65% Medicaid, 